you doing? Good. It's good to see you. It's good to be seen. Uh, all of you who are joining us, I'm going to try to get right this time from Aurora, the North Shore. Actually, went last week to North Shore and they made fun of me because last time I was here, I forgot them in telling uh, them hello. So they were very mean, and I'm never going back. Uh, Aurora, North Shore. Uh, Rolling Meadows, Chicago Cathedral, and Crystal Lake. Listen, uh, Chicago Cathedral, last night I was down in the city at the Chicago Cathedral for a young adults uh, worship event, and I got an opportunity to speak to them. Uh, I take some medication in the evening, and my brain was really fuzzy, so I still don't know what it is that I said. But uh, I got to tell you, if you're a young adult and you're not involved in our young adults ministry here, uh, you are outside the will of God. Uh, I'm, I'm kidding. Seriously, you really should consider it very much. It's a great, great ministry. The guys who run it are fantastic and uh, just can't say enough good things about it. I'm hoping they ask me back, but uh, I don't know if they will. Listen, you need a Bible, and you need to turn it to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Um, over my years in ministry, I have done an awful lot of weddings, there was one summer, I think, I did something like 15, 16 weddings. I remember doing three in one weekend. On that particular weekend, when I did three, I had to preach a sermon or sermons at my church in Canada. So I did a wedding Friday, wedding Saturday, preached three sermons on Saturday night and two Sunday morning, and then the next one was on Sunday afternoon. Um, I had gone to the rehearsal before I didn't, but I couldn't remember exactly how I had gotten there. I was kind of new to the area and churches, so I was like, well, I'll just take the freeway there. I didn't realize that on Sunday afternoons in the summer around the Vancouver area, uh, everybody comes back from the eastern part of the province. Everybody in the city of Vancouver leaves, and they all come back. And so I was stuck in traffic for a while, so much so that I was late for the wedding. I remember being on, on the phone saying, I am so sorry, I'm stuck in traffic. It's gonna be like 30 minutes and the wedding's supposed to start in 15. They're like, it's okay, it's okay, we'll, we'll stretch it out. We'll just play a lot of intro music. <laughs> so apparently the people were sitting there for a very long time while the intro music was playing and then when I finally arrived, it was about 10, 15 minutes after this thing was supposed to start, everybody was seated. It was at a golf course. Everybody gets married these days at golf courses and stuff like that. And so it was on the putting green of a golf course. It's a very famous golf course. It's in the movie Happy Gilmore, if you ever want to know that. Swanee said is the name of it. And the, the putting green is sort of away from the main building. And so what happens during this wedding is you have uh, the bridesmaids will walk a great distance all the way down this path to the putting green where you're standing as the, as the officiant, kind of with your back to the course. Anyway, I run in, I run right up to the front, and I'm swe sweating, and I said, I'm so sorry that I am late. Whew. I'm glad I'm here. Let's get started. So I opened my little wedding book, and the names on that wedding book were from Friday. And the order of service was from Friday. I had grabbed the wrong book, and I'm standing there in front of these people, and I'm looking at the, the groom and a whole bunch of people there, and I haven't got a clue what his name is. At this point, I, I don't even remember at all. He was involved in our young adults ministry. I was new to, the, new to it. They asked me to do their wedding. I, un, I, I in, in a dumb way, put it at the last one in these three weddings that I had to do. So I'm standing there late. The bridesmaids are walking down, you know, before the bride comes, and they're walking down, and I'm thinking, I don't, I don't know who you are, and I don't even know who the bride is. 
So I have to figure out now how to, how to get that name. This is not a good story about my pastoral ability. Anyway, I, I, so I said to the guy, um, so when I introduce you, how would you like me to do that? <laughs> and I pulled my pen out, and he said, well, you could say Mr. and, Mr. Mr. and Mrs. Dixon. And I'm like, that doesn't help. You, you don't want your first name included? It kind of sounds weird if you just say Mr. and Mrs. Dixon. That sounds like your parents. So maybe you should just do your name? Yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, Miss, Mr. and Mrs. John Dixon. O- okay, I think your wife's gonna probably be really offended if you don't include her actual name in this. So like you probably should include, okay, Mr. And Mrs. Okay, Mr. John Dixon and Mrs. Kimberly Dixon. I didn't know what happened during the whole service. I got the names right, didn't know what order it was. People were standing up at one point, coming forward and praying. I had no idea about any of it. But let me tell you something, that weddings are always a success. No matter how bad things go, weddings are always a success if they leave married. (laughs) And they give you the gift basket regardless. They're like, oh, thank you so much. And I'm like, yeah, not a problem. Not, not Not a problem at all. Weddings are easy. They're great. Uh, Marriages, not so much. Marriages are hard. It's hard to live under the same roof with somebody else who's a sinner, especially if they're a worse sinner than you, you know? I had a friend who's a pastor. Uh, He told me a number of years ago that he stopped doing weddings altogether because so many of the people he had married had stopped following uh, Jesus, or they've stopped, they just, their marriages end in divorce. He just said, I can't take it anymore. My heart just can't bear it. I spent all this time with these dear people, and then after they get married, they, they walk away from their commitments, and I just, I just can't do it. So I've given up doing any, any weddings. Yeah, marriage is hard. And the truth is we need as much help as we can get, and the beauty of scriptures is it does not disappoint when it comes to marriage. This passage that we're going to look at here in the next couple minutes is like the passage that I usually preach at a wedding. Uh, Not as long as I'm going to do it here because I do, you know, if you preach at a wedding, they give you, what, 10 minutes and they're not listening to you anyway. They're just looking at each other's eyes. (laughs) I'm so happy. And you can say anything. Uh, Like I said, as long as they end up married, it's all good. So I don't ever get a chance to really uh, draw out from this passage as much as I want. So I'm really excited about doing this here today. Ephesians 5, chapter, or verses 22 to 33. Here's how I want to go about this. I want to take kind of a bird's eye view first. I want to tell you uh, two big ideas about marriage. Two big ideas about marriage that are in this passage. And then secondly, I want to look at Instructions for wives and instructions for husbands. So we go from the bird's eye to the more narrow focus. So here's the first one, the two big ideas about marriage. Before I get into it, can I just warn all of you who are not married, you're like, I am checking out of this sermon, what's on Instagram? Stop, stop right now. Listen, uh, the likelihood if you're single is that you will eventually get married. That's just a a statistical reality. But even if you don't, singleness is a great thing, right? It is a, it is a gift of God. 
It's not some uh, 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 burden to be carried. It is, it is a joy to be, to be honored. But we need you. We marry people. We desperately need you to help us. The church is better when marriages are stronger, and you single people, you really do have a part to play in that as part of the community of faith. So can you just listen closely so that you can help us become better husbands and wives? So here we go, two big ideas about marriage. Number one, my marriage is supposed to be a picture of the gospel. My marriage is supposed to be a picture of the gospel. Uh, the Apostle Paul calls it a mystery. Let me show you uh, the passage itself at the end. Uh, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. See, when the Apostle Paul uses the word mystery in, in, in his writings, he's not referring to something, I don't know, it's a mystery to me. He's referring to something that used to be unknown, but now, because of Christ, has become known. So what he's saying here is that, you know, for all these years, we've really not known what, what marriage is supposed to be about. Like, why do husbands marry wives? Why do the two become one flesh? What, what is that, you know, what is the significance of this in a cosmic eternal way, and Paul comes along and says, hey, now that Christ has come, he has shown us that, our, that marriage is a picture of the gospel. The way Christ loves the church ought to be the way that husbands love their wives. And the way the church responds to Christ ought to be the way that wives respond to their husbands. We know this now, he says. So while he's talking through this, and he is talking about marriage, he's also saying, hey, but guys, seriously, this marriage, this is about Jesus and his church. That's a pretty heavy thought, though, for you guys who are married, right? That when the world looks at your marriage, what they're supposed to see is how the gospel functions. It is actually an apologetic. It is an argument for the gospel. When the world looks into your marriage, they say, oh, that's how Christ loves. Gentlemen. And that's how the church is supposed to respond, ladies. Is that what they see? So first... Our marriages are supposed to be a picture of the gospel. Second of my two big ideas, my marriage needs the Holy Spirit to be a picture of the gospel. So marriage is supposed to be a picture of the gospel, but my marriage needs the Holy Spirit to be a picture of the gospel. I want to go back right before this passage we're looking at. Remember, we're starting in verse 22 of Ephesians 5. So I'm gonna go back to verse 18. I wanna show you something really cool about this passage. Here it is. And do not get drunk with wine. That is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit. There are two imperatives here, two commands. Do not get drunk, but be filled. Now, after he says that, be, be filled with the Spirit, and that command happens, there are, there are there are uh, results of you being filled with the Spirit. 
What does it look like, in other words, for you to be filled with the Spirit? Well, he says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, uh, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the last one, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So you, I hope you saw that. There are, say, do not get drunk, but be, ooh, my pen's not working. Oh, there it is. Be filled. Oh, that says filled, by the way, not firewood. <laughs> be filled with the Spirit. How? Well, you, you, you address one another with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. You, you sing and make melody in your heart to the Lord. You, uh, you give thanks for all things. And you submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is not a way to be filled. This is what happens when you are filled. Please hear that. You know, there's a whole bunch of debate in the church these days. Are you spirit-filled? Are you spirit-filled? Are you spirit-filled? You ask a lot of people, hey, what's the evidence that you're spirit-filled? Well, you fall down on the ground and you shake. Or you speak in tongues of angels. You speak prophecy. Now, some of that might, might be true. But when Paul has an opportunity to talk about what it looks like to be filled by the Spirit, he talks about really normal stuff. Do you sing and make melody in your heart to the Lord? You know, on your way around, are, are you giving thanks for all things or are you a whiner? See, I know you're not Spirit-filled if you're walking around complaining about everything. Evidence of spirit filling is giving thanks, and evidence of spirit filling is submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, some people say, oh, well, that's a statement about what we call mutual submission. So I submit to you, and you submit to me, and we all submit to each other, and then submit and submit, submit, submit. Actually, that's not what this text is saying. Paul says, I want you to submit to one another of reverence for Christ, and then he gives you the relationships in which you ought to submit. The next passages are about wives to husbands, slaves to masters, children to parents. So in other words, whatever relationship you're in, there is probably an authority and submission situation going on there. When you're in a workplace environment, there's an authority and submission situation. What does it look like to be spirit-filled in your workplace? Submit to the authority. Children, what does it look like for you to be a spirit-filled child? To submit to the authority of your parents. And wives, what does it look like to be a spirit-filled wife? To submit to the authority of your husband. Now you say, oh my goodness, that's, that's, that's crazy. Yes, it is crazy because it's so unrealistic for us. That's why I'm saying you need the Holy Spirit. You hear his argument? Be filled with the Spirit, and the result will be submitting. So our marriages are a picture of the gospel. And second, we need the Holy Spirit for our marriages to be a picture of the gospel. Now, can I tell you, before we get into the instructions on wives and husbands, which is what he's going to do next, uh, can I just tell you to read your own mail? Uh, what I mean by that is when wives are in, very common thing when you get into this text, a lot of people are like, uh, husbands love reading the portions about wives. See, honey, that's what it says. Right there, see that? Mm-hmm. It's like you picked up her mail, it has her address on it, you opened it up and you started reading it to her. You don't, we don't do this. 
And wives, when you look at husbands, say, well, I'd submit if he were a better leader. See, your letter says this. And so the temptation we have is to look over the fence at each other's requirements and focus on those. No, Paul says, no, 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 no. You have a certain responsibility in this picture of the gospel of your husband. It's to lead like Christ. And it's, if you're a wife, it's to respond like the church. Ought to respond. So then let's deal with uh, the instructions to wives. So two big pictures, instructions to wives. Here we go. Verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Always love that, own. Not to your friends, husbands. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is... The head of the wife, this word is debated in theological circles. The, the, it, it means authority. They, a lot of people argue it means source. It's a really bad argument uh, in Greek. But it means authority. The husband is the authority of the wife, even as Christ is the authority of the church. His body and is himself its savior. See, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So I gotta tell you, I think we should go out in the streets right now and just put that on a poster and walk around. What do you think? Good idea? Wow, there's certain things that you can read from the Bible out in public these days that will definitely get you hit. And that, that will probably be, be one of them. So there are lots of reasons why it is culturally that people try to argue out of this, out of this um, passage. Submission is not a popular idea today. But listen, God has a right to properly define our relationships. He made us. He made marriage. He made the institution. He wants it to be a picture of the gospel. And in the gospel, Christ is the head of the church. And the church submits to him Willingly and lovingly with joy. But I know it's a challenge for us to be sitting here and thinking about this particular subject. And I, there are all sorts of barriers in our mind culturally. So let me try to engage with uh, four questions on submission. Number one, shouldn't we move beyond this recipe for oppression? Like, isn't this the problem with the world? Do you not know about the Me Too movement? Do you not know about the Church Too movement? Do you not know about all the terrible things that men have done in the name of passages like this to their wives and other women? Shouldn't we just move beyond this recipe for oppression? And you can understand, listen, before you might dismiss that from some people, if you've ever had a bad husband or a bad father or a bad brother or somebody who used the power that they had to abuse and hurt, this is your first response, justifiably so. Like I know the Bible says that, but I've never had an experience that makes it look like the husband is the head of the wife and looks like Jesus when he loves. Are you kidding me? There's a theologian named Richard Gans who years ago, he said, when you realize that men have subjugated women for thousands of years, you can only wonder how it took so long for the feminist movement to form 
It's unfortunately rare to find a marriage in which the husband recognizes that he bears the responsibility of headship and exercises it in humility and love rather than force and authoritarianism. Now, I'm against, he says, much of what the feminist movement advocates. I understand why it's emerged. I believe that if Christian men had been the servant leaders in the home rather than conceited chauvinists, the feminist movement would have died a quick and easy death. If men had sought ways to see the gifts and talents of their wives developed and utilized rather than taking a beautiful person and making her into little more than a personal slave. If men had not twisted the doctrine of headship, we would not have the current problems between men and women in our society. Amen. Because leadership is abused, our temptation is to say leadership's the problem. But that's a fallacy. And by fallacy, I mean it's not logically correct. The abuse of a thing does not negate its proper use. The abuse of a thing does not negate its proper use. You say, what in the world does that mean? Okay, so I used to play tennis. I know, looks like it. Um, I used to play tennis. I have my white shoes and khaki pants on, though, so that kind of fits. Let's say uh, I took my tennis racket and I went up to you and he started hitting you with it. I've wanted to do this to Roger a couple times already. Just kidding, Roger's the executive pastor. I make a lot of jokes, you guys. Some of you are like a little bit nervous about the fact that I'm gonna hit the kid guy. No, I'm not gonna hit Roger, it's okay. I'm gonna say I go up and I hit, I hit Roger with my tennis racket. Now Roger could respond in this moment by saying, I hate tennis rackets. We should ban every tennis racket. The problem with the world today is tennis rackets. I'm injured because of this tennis racket. Ban them all. Okay, but the problem is in the tennis racket. You can take the tennis racket, you can go out and play tennis with it, and it's useful, very useful for that task. But if you take the tennis racket, remove it from its proper use, and abuse it, the problem is not the tennis racket. The problem is you. In the same way, the problem is not male headship. The problem is the abuse of male headship. I know that it happens consistently. A lot of people running around with tennis rackets hitting people, and it makes us start wondering, maybe we should get rid of the tennis racket. But that's a fallacy. No. Good leadership is the solution to abused leadership. No leadership, that's not the solution. Certainly not the way that God thinks about it. So shouldn't we move beyond this recipe for oppression? No, because it doesn't have to be a recipe for oppression. When you look at the way that Jesus led and the way that Jesus served, what is he doing? He's getting down on his hands and knees and he's washing the feet of his disciples. Those he has authority over, he's washing their feet. He goes to the cross for them. He embraces the judgment and the shame for them. He stands in the gap for them. Now that's Christian headship. Self-sacrificing, committed to the other leadership. That's the solution to chauvinism. Question number two. Um, calling the wife to submit, that basically makes her sound less important, less competent, or less intelligent than her husband, doesn't it? 
Well, um, in the Bible, you will find very quickly that just because people have different roles does not mean they have different value. Uh, there's a whole chapter in 1 Corinthians 12 that talks about the different gifts that we have, and Paul actually goes out of his way to say each and every gift is, is important. So don't, don't think, the Corinthians were thinking that if you had the gift of tongues, you were way up at the top of the, of, of the ladder in terms of importance. God likes you more. And he goes out of his way to say, no, no, every gift is important. Everyone is valued. Some are useful in some settings, and some are more useful in other settings, but everyone should be valued and honored, even though they have different roles. Um, church elders are not more important, and by important I mean ontologically, as in being, they're not more important than church members. Do they have different roles? Yes. Different responsibilities? Yes. Will they be held to account differently? Yes. But they're no better than the rest of the congregation, the rest of the members of the church. I can do this with... Um, Sports as well. Uh, my son played volleyball for a lot of years, and uh, in volleyball, it's it's kind of crazy because the umpire in volleyball—is it umpire or referee? I can't remember. It doesn't matter. It's volleyball. So, he umpire in volleyball stands on the stands on the the stand at the side, and they are basically little demigods. That's how they act, right? Nobody is allowed to speak to me except the single person who is the captain on this team. Even the coach can't talk to him. The coach has to talk to the captain, who has to talk to the umpire. Referee. And then he goes back. Everything's got to go through the captain. You can't talk to him at all. So the, so the captain of the volleyball team has a very significant part to play in terms of the leadership of the team. But usually the captain is not the best player. They're just the more stable-minded player because they have to talk to the referee and not yell at him because they'll get kicked out if they do. You and I would never come to a team and say, well, that person's more important as a person than that person Actually, no, the setter is really valuable. You're not going to be able to hit the ball. The hitter's really valuable as well, and so is the, the libero, the person who passes the ball when, when the other guys hit across the net. They're all very important, very different roles, but there is a hierarchy of leadership in the team. Jesus, is he less important than the Father? Because he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, bowing down on his knees, saying, if, if it's possible, take this cup from me. But not my will, but yours, yours be done. He's submitting to his father's authority in the plan of redemption. Is Jesus less valuable, less competent, less able? Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely not. In fact, in the Christian faith, those who submit have a high, high value. Do you remember when uh, Jesus submits to his father, he is lifted up, Philippians 2, he's lifted up so that his name is above every name. Because he forewent for his place in heaven and all the blessings in, in heaven, was incarnated, lived a life, submitted himself to the cross in that garden, his name is lifted above every name, that every knee should bow. I think God cares an awful lot about those who submit. I think he honors an awful lot those who submit. Question three then. Is Paul saying that the wife should give into every demand her husband makes? Yes. Question four. No, I'm kidding. That's not, that's not true. Is, is Paul, my wife's out of town, just so you know. Is Paul saying that his wife should give into every demand her husband makes? No, actually her desire is to honor him. Like, 
those in submission under authority, whether it's in your workplace or in your marriage or, or, or wherever, you want to honor the leader. You do. Your heart is inclined toward yielding. But there are places where you can't yield because what the leader is telling you to do draws straight against what, the, what God tells you to do. And when the leader comes in conflict with God, God wins. So what you find in, in the Bible is uh, the Apostle Peter, for example, he's giving a sermon to, uh, in Acts chapter 4, he's giving a sermon, he gets arrested, sorry, in Acts chapter 2, and then he finally goes before the Sanhedrin, the ruling religious council of the Jews. He stands there and they tell him, listen, you, you can't, we're going to let you go, you and John, but you guys stop preaching in this name of Jesus. Stop it. Or else. And Peter says, Acts 4, 19, Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Like, if it's a choice between God and you, sorry guys, there's only one ruler. There's only one exalted. So we're going to follow him. Hebrew midwives who were told by Pharaoh, kill all the Hebrew babies. They're like, they give birth so fast we can't get there. Liars. But they're honored by, by God. The, the heart of those in roles of submission is to yield. But they don't have to yield when the leader is asking them to do something that goes against God's call. All right then, question four. In light of all that, what does submission require? Well, um, I'll just tell you, I, I'm gonna give you two commitments. If you wanna submit well, uh, number one, a commitment to deference. D-E-F-E-R-E-N-C-E. -E -E -E. Deference, not a word we use very often these days, but it means to, to defer. Willingly place the decision in the hands of somebody else because you trust and love them. That's what the church does for Christ. We will follow you wherever. I was one time interviewing at a church uh, at another place in the United States a lot of years ago, and when we showed up there, my wife was with me, and uh, we were interviewing, and we had a dinner with the pastor's family. And I asked the pastor, is this what you've always wanted to do, be a pastor of this church? He said, yeah, but I have this real heart to go plant churches, and I, I would really love to hand this church over to somebody so I can go out and plant in this particular area with a bunch of new homes and lots of people who don't know Jesus. I've, in fact, I feel like the Lord's really called us to do this. And his wife bites off and she, she says, well, ha, send me a postcard. Now, I compared that at the moment to what my wife did when uh, I called her from Dallas Seminary. I just went and visited Dallas Seminary, and it was in the middle of the summer, and it was horribly, horribly, horribly hot like it is in Dallas all the time. I sweated every time I went outside, but for some reason, I just knew that God wanted us to come to this seminary. I knew. I'd gone to lots of other ones. This is the seminary God wants me to, to go to. I don't know why. I just got this vibe from it, and so I call her on the phone from the Dallas-Fort Worth airport. She was in Europe, and I said, honey, I really feel like God's calling us to, to, to Dallas, and she said, okay. deference. 
She asked other questions. Hey, what about this? Is it out there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I really feel like this is it, and here are the reasons why. And it's a really good school, and your father went there, and he'll be really proud of me and be you know, nice to me for the rest of my life. All sorts of good reasons. And okay. That's what it looks like to defer. So wives, are you willing to leave space for him to lead? Commitment to deference, how about a commitment to respect? Danny Aiken, uh, he's a theologian and pastor, he said, um, when it comes to needs, women need to feel valued and men need to feel successful. Very true. Women need to be heard. Communication is invaluable in speaking to the heart of a woman. Men, on the other hand, like their canine companions, need to be praised. When a woman praises her man, she speaks to one of his most basic needs of his heart, his need for admiration. His soul soars at the special place he occupies in the evaluation of his spouse. I gotta tell you, after I preach sermons, uh, I often feel very bad because I, I self-accuse a lot and I'm just terrible, you're horrible. But when I go home and my wife, I, I, I wait for it, in fact, if my wife says, that was good, everything else goes away. Man, I don't care what the rest of you think, my woman thought it was great, <laughs> right? <laughs> Something happens inside my spirit when she praises me, when she respects me, when she tells me that I think what you're doing there is great. You're excellent at that, Jeff. Commitment to deference, a commitment to respect. Instructions for wives. Okay, gentlemen. Instructions for husbands. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did he love the church? Well, he gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, set her apart, make her holy, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish in the same way then. Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Okay, guys, if you want to know what it looks like to love your wives, just look to Jesus. Did you notice how much more, like, space, though, that, got, um, that Paul spent with the guys? Like the wives, they get two sentences and the guys get like eight. Why? Well, if you think about it theologically, what you've got here is you've got him describing how, how husbands are in the place of Christ in terms of their marriage, right? They're supposed to show what Jesus is like with the church. And how do people come to faith? Are they the one who initiate? No, God is. 
Jesus is, and so you have this great cycle. What you have in the church is Jesus giving himself for the church who submits, and Jesus keeps giving, and they submit more, and they give, and they submit. And this is what happens in the relationships that you and I have. If husbands, if you start to love your wives like Christ loved the church, she's not going to have a lot of problems submitting to you. And when she submits to you, you're going to want to love her more that way. And then she's going to want to submit more to you. And then you're going to want to love her more that way. See the cycle? Round and round it goes. But it all begins with the husband, just like the gospel begins with Christ. So the question we have to ask is, okay, what does the leadership of Jesus look like? Well, he gave you a whole bunch of images there. I'll give you a few commitments, just like I did to the wives. First, uh, it's a commitment to faithfulness. A commitment to faithfulness. Um, If you were to sit down and read the entire Old Testament in one sitting, one of the things that you would learn very quickly is that God pursues and is faithful to the covenant he made with his people. Even when they do the most ridiculous thing, God pursues and is faithful to the covenant he made with his people. Jesus is always faithful to the church, even when she is not. His devotion is undivided. Kent Hughes, a former pastor of College Church down in Wheaton, he said, men, our wives must be able to rest in our fidelity. Everything about us, our eyes, our language, our schedules, our passion, must say to her, I am and will always be faithful to you. Gentlemen, do your eyes say that? with what it is that you look at and spend time seeing and investing your eyes in, does it communicate to your wife that my eyes are only and always for you? Your schedules say that. How I order my time. That the number one priority under God in my life is you. commitment to faithfulness, a commitment to growth. Uh, You saw that here, didn't you? A commitment to growth. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. The goal of Christ with the church is her purity, is presenting her in all the glory that she has been made to be presented with. What's weird to me is a lot of men that I've spoken to in the past, you know, you do counseling and stuff with marriages, a lot of men, one of the things they say is uh, they talk to you a lot about how hard it was for them to start a business or something like that, right? Have you ever noticed that? So if you guys have started businesses, you know what it's like to be an entrepreneur. You gotta you know, chase down the leads. You gotta be the accountant and everything else. You tend all the time that you possibly can. And your goal all throughout it is to grow the business. I just wanna grow the business. I wanna get the business to the point. The kind of energy that is required in order for you to grow a business is remarkable because your singular focus is to make it flourish. Guys, take that energy Drop it in your marriage because your single focus is to make her flourish. Gardeners spend an awful lot of time in their prize flowers. 
They watch them every day. They evaluate, how better can I nurture this so that it will grow and and flourish and become all that it really needs to be? So pray with her and share with her and listen to her and lead her to church and make her growth your business. Commitment to faithfulness, a commitment to growth, a commitment to care, verse 28, 29. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. <laughs> and no one hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. I gotta tell you, man, if, you, if I get sick, you will know about it. I will tell you, I will be on the couch. This is the worst day of my life. It's horrible. If I'm hungry, I clearly eat. If I am tired, I sleep. Whatever it is that my body demands of me, I will care for my body to make sure that it is absolutely right. If I have a hurt pinky toe, that will be all it is that I address on this particular day. Husbands, Love your wives as your own body. That kind of commitment, that, that kind of interest, that kind of giving. At every wedding that I, I, I have, every wedding that I've done, I read this um, quote from J. Robertson McQuilkin. Uh, J. Robertson McQuilkin, he decided to stop being the president of Columbia Biblical Seminary in South Carolina because his wife Muriel had Alzheimer's. When he published why he did this, uh, at first he spoke about it and everyone was like, why would you give up this amazing ministry that you have right now? You're serving God and all these things. So he had to write down why it was that he was doing. And this this is what he said. He said, my dear wife Muriel has been in failing mental health for about eight years. So far, I've been able to carry both her ever-growing needs and my leadership responsibilities at Columbia Biblical Seminary, but recently, it has become apparent that Muriel is contented most of the time she is with me, and almost none of the time I am away from her. It is not just discontent. She's filled with fear, even terror, that she's lost me and she always goes in search of me when I leave home. Then she may be full of anger when she can't get to me, so it's clear to me that she needs me now full-time. But the decision was made, in a way, 42 years ago when I promised to care for Muriel in sickness and in health until death do us part. So as a man of my word, integrity has something to do with it. But so does fairness. She has cared for me fully and sacrificially all these years. If I cared for her the next 40 years, I would not be out of debt. Duty, however, can be so grim and stoic. There's more. I love Muriel. She's a delight to me. Her childlike dependence and confidence in me, her warm love and her occasional flashes of that wit I used to relish so, her happy spirit and tough resilience in the face of her continual distressing frustration. See, I don't have to care for her. I get to. It is a high honor to care for so wonderful a person. 
I wonder if you'd write that, gentlemen. I wonder if you'd do that. Well, if it came down to it, I would. Okay, how about it just comes down to it before then? You will be what you're becoming. So what are you becoming when it comes to this? When I look at your marriage, do I say, that looks like Christ's love for the church. Right, my sermon is basically done, but I'm gonna tell you a junk drawer. You guys have junk drawers in your houses? Yeah, you know you do. Some of you have junk rooms. You know the junk drawer? You just open the drawer. I'm gonna throw that in there. I'm gonna throw that in there. I'm gonna throw that in there. So here's the deal. I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you a few things I shouldn't have to tell you, but in the modern world, I have to tell you. Here's, some, here's finally a few junk drawer things. Here they are. If you're cheating on your spouse, you need to stop right now. If you call yourself a Christian in any way, you are deceiving yourself if you perpetuate that act unrepentantly and continue it. If you're cheating on your spouse, you need to stop right now. You need to take whatever steps are necessary to turn away from that action. If you're flirting with someone who is not your spouse, you need to stop now. Because cheating doesn't just happen. You don't show up at work one day and say, I'm gonna have an affair. It's a lot of work that goes into that. If you're thinking divorce is an option, can you stop now? You know that there's help to be had. I mean, I tell you right now, if you contacted Britt this afternoon, he'd be right there for you. If you contacted any of the campus pastors where you are, they'd be right there for you. If some of what I said today has stung, can you repent now? I never read this passage at a wedding or any other time that I don't think to myself, man, I'm not a good husband. I'm so much more concerned about me than I am her. I'm so much more focused on my flourishing than I am hers. But here's the great thing. Here's the great thing. Jesus died for failure husbands and wives. He loves those who can't get it right. He surrounds himself, in fact, with people who just mess it up over and over. So if you get stung by this and you feel that sense that God is pointing his finger at you, that's not bad news, that's good news. He's calling you out and saying, come, come, let's fix this. The future can be bright and magnificent, but it requires you to turn Acknowledge that things have not been right and have not been magnificent and you turn to Jesus. He loves failures like us, but he never leaves us that way. He wants our embracing of the gospel to lead to our marriages looking like the gospel. And he is faithful and he will do it. Amen? Father, I'm thankful for my friends. I'm thankful, Father, for your word and for the challenge that it brings, but ultimately I'm thankful for the gospel, this grand mystery that explains so much of the things that we're experiencing. Would our marriages look like the gospel? Would you make it so? Spirit, would you come convict us, draw us out, cleanse us with your grace and help us to walk forward into a new day. Help us to do the things that are required for that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.